Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We hope you experience God today. Make sure you visit us at risenking.life to take all your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. We've been spending a, a couple of months in the parables of Jesus. I Every year, at least one part of the year, I just like to go back to exactly what Jesus said. And as we look at this parable today, we're really looking at one of his last parables. It's, it's a parable that he spoke during the week between his triumphant entry and his going to the cross. And many people actually say this isn't a parable because it is not veiled. There is nothing subtle about this parable. And so we're going to read it together. It's from Luke chapter 20. It's on the front of your bulletin. Uh, I like it when we as a church read God's word out loud together. I believe it's an act of worship. So let's do this together. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now Jesus' intent here, or his purpose, is to expose what is underneath the religious veil. And what he exposes, he actually evokes in them, he provokes it in them, and they get so angry, they get so filled with hatred that they decide... We are going to kill him. There is no other option but to kill him. But this parable that he told made him so popular with the people, they couldn't do it at that moment. Now what it it precipitated this moment, what what it brought about all of this is Jesus was in Jerusalem. He was in the temple. And he was treating the temple as if it were his own. He had come into the temple and he had cleansed all the money changers and all the corruption and all the ways people were trying to buy favor with God. And while people were making profit off of people's devotion. He cleansed the temple. That didn't make people real happy. Then Luke says something you don't see anywhere else, but it says Jesus was in the temple preaching the gospel. And it's a, it's a powerful statement because in, in most places... The gospel writers say Jesus was revealing himself. He was speaking about himself. But here, Luke says, the good news is Jesus himself, and he's preaching that. 
You know what he's probably saying is something like John records for us, that God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son, his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, that Jesus himself came into this world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But that made the religious leaders so angry. And they thought, how can we trap this man? And they asked him a question they thought would get him. By what authority do you do what you do? By what authority do you speak what you speak? Because, you know, when particularly the religious leaders of Jesus' day spoke, they quoted other people all the time. They never spoke their own truth. They spoke somebody else's truth. And Jesus is speaking this truth like no one has ever heard. And they're like, what authority are you using? And they know if he says God's, then they have him. He's a heretic. So Jesus is, shows in this, in this interchange how incredibly full of the Holy Spirit he is and how full of the Word of God he is. And he says, well, I'll answer your question if you answer my question. And my question is, by what authority did John the Baptist speak? And they have to confer with one another because they're, you know, they're going to get in trouble if they answer too quickly. Because if they say John the Baptist spoke from God, John the Baptist spoke from heaven, then they'd have to acknowledge John the Baptist said Jesus is the Messiah. And they'd have to, they'd have to put all of their stuff down and actually follow Jesus. But if they say John is a heretic and doesn't speak the truth, then they have to face the crowd who will probably kill him. Because they love John the Baptist and John the Baptist was martyred for his faith. And so they would be disrespecting John. So they, they came out with this early CNN comment. No comment. No comment. So Jesus says, well, if you can't tell me where John's authority came from, I can't tell you where mine does. But then he tells this parable. And this parable, friends, this parable says to them, you say you love God, but you actually hate God. And then he proves it because he makes them so angry that they kill the Son of God. He proves how much anger, how much hatred they have by this parable. Now here is what I want you to understand about what Jesus is teaching because it's not just, it's not just a a word to religious leaders. It's not just a word to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Jesus is teaching here and showing here that even the most devoted people, even the most religious, even the most moral people have something underneath everything that goes on in their life. And here's what Jesus is basically teaching is this, that all of your anger, all of your anxiety, all your depression, all your fear, all your worry, all the things that you're discouraged about, all of those things, all of them have something underneath them that is the root cause of them. And what Jesus is saying here is, is it's the hatred that all of us have towards God. And this is what many people don't want to discuss, they won't want to think about, but the Bible says in Romans 8, it says your natural state the natural state of your mind is hatred of God. That you're hostile towards Him. 
that you have anger with him, that you're disappointed in him. So much so in Romans 1, Paul says that we distract our hostility with unrighteousness. That we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we give ourselves permission to find our pleasure in whatever gives us pleasure. And what Jesus is trying to get across, not just to the religious leaders, but to all of us for all time, is that unless this hatred of God is addressed, you will never come into a place of right standing with God. Now, here's how he explains the hatred situation. He says, there's this owner and there are these tenants. And he actually has three, there are three relationships, the tenants to the owner, tenants to the messengers, and tenants, the tenants to the son. But here's the first one. And he describes, he describes whether it's religious or irreligious. It doesn't matter that we have this relationship, that human beings have a relationship to God as the owner, and we are his tenants. We are the stewards. As a matter of fact, the way Jesus presents it is that God, God bought a vineyard, and he invested in this vineyard, and he took the risks of the vineyard, but he entrusted the stewardship and the care of the vineyard to us, to we, his people. Now, in some ways, the way the Bible says it and what Jesus is particularly referring to is that Israel, the children of Israel, were seen as God's planted vineyard. And in them, He made known how the vineyard was to be taken care of. And what Jesus is speaking here is He's saying that the vineyard was to be cared for by the tenants according to the word and the will of the owner. If the tenants tended to the, the garden, if they did so by the words and the will of the owner, then the owner would take care of the tenants. The tenants would prosper. They would be satisfied. They would be fulfilled. But if they chose not to tend the vineyard by the will of the owner or the words of the owner, then dreadful things would happen. As a matter of fact, in this story, Jesus says that not only were the tenants to care for the vineyard by the word and will of the owner, they also to, to give the profits or the fruit of the vineyard to the owner. Now, those of you who have been around the Bible for a long time and you've been around theology or Christianity for a long time, you'll, you'll hear this word profit and you should immediately go to the idea of glory. You see, those of us who have, have been trained in the faith, those of us who have been trained in this idea of Christianity, we know something in the back of our heads about the fact that all the glory belongs to God. We know something. We know something that when he's talking about the prophet, he's talking about that, that everything that you are and everything you have is meant to be lived to the glory of God. As a matter of fact, the English Puritans put it this way. What... What is the purpose of your life? What is the meaning of your life? And they said this, to glorify God, which is to give God the prophets, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, which is to live by His Word. And this is what Jesus is explaining in this parable. And the idea here is basically that He has entrusted 
us to care for His vineyard by His Word. He's entrusted us to care for His vineyard in such a way that all the prophets go to Him and then He will take care of His tenants. And here Jesus is saying, though, that even these religious leaders did not care for the vineyard according to the Word. And they grew to hate the owner. And the reason that they hate the owner is because they don't want to be tenants. They want to be owners. Well, that's the specific theological point of this text, but there's a broader point here. Jesus is trying to get across to every single person that has ever lived. Do you not understand that the biology that you live in, the very breath that you have has been given to you by the owner? That your very life is an investment that He has made. He's taken the risk and he's, taken, he, he's asking for both the profits and the deficits to be His, but He's asking you to acknowledge and to understand you're not the owner. You're the tenant. These emotions that you cling to as yours, He gave you the ability to have emotions. The creativity that makes your life seem bigger than it even is in a sense. You know, I'm going to do something meaningful. I'm going to write a song that's going to last forever. If you're able to do that, it's because He gave you that creativity. If you're even able to understand anything, it's because He gave you the intellect. He, he made you a tenant of your own body. And you're not the owner. And so what happens is that when tenants begin to act like owners, then they say things like this, it's my body. I can do whatever I want with it. No one can tell me what to do. There can be no rules for me except my own rules for myself. You understand the issues that we're facing in our world are because we are tenants who believe we are owners. And as long as we are tenants who believe we are owners, then we are not understanding that the owner puts certain things into even the way you think, that you have to think in a way that's according to the way He made you. That you cannot go around thinking, I can do anything sexually with my body. Because that's, an, that's you a tenant thinking you're an owner. And when you are a tenant think you're an owner, you are just like the people in this parable. You're saying, I will kill anyone who tells me otherwise. Don't bring this up to me. Even when we have money and we have success and we have networks of relationships, even those things are given to us by the owner for us to be successful tenants. But the problem is we don't know that. As a matter of fact, what's happening in our world is we're getting more and more advice on how to be owners. If you look at most self-help books, they're not about how to be a better tenant to your master. They're mostly about how to be a better owner of your own life. Listen, though those books are written by humans, they are originated in hell. Jesus said this, Satan is the father of lies. So every lie has the DNA of somebody whose only ob object, objective for you is not self-help, but to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Amen. Think about this for a minute. If somebody truly hates you, truly hates you, 
with like just that ice cold hatred. They don't show it to you. Because if you don't know it, then they can work against you without obstruction. And so what happens is a lot of people will say something like this even to me. They'll say, I don't hate God. I just don't believe there is a God. Think about it for a minute. What is the most hateful thing anybody can do to you can treat you as if you do not exist? At least when they're angry with you, they're dealing with you. At least when they're criticizing you or, or, or insulting you, at least you're a person that's in front of them in existence. When you say something doesn't even exist, you are showing the greatest form of hatred. And so what happens to many of us is we don't realize how much our hatred of God is manifesting in our desire to be in control and our desire to be owners when we're just tenants. Listen, one of the manifestations of that that is very clear to me is that all prejudice come from tenants who are pretending to be owners. Every bit of racism, every bit of classism, every bit of I'm better than you because of something physical or something that I've, I, I've earned myself, every bit of that is me saying, I'm an owner, you're my tenant. Because if we are all tenants and He is the owner, then we're all equal. And our efforts and our, our work together, whether yours is bigger than mine or more responsible or you have greater talents than mine, but yours and mine become vital in order to successfully tend the vineyard. And instead of looking at you as a competitor or looking at you as someone upon whom I can feel better about myself, I look at how I can empower you to be the best you so that the vineyard becomes the best vineyard. Are you hearing me in this? And some of us have even believed that not only are we owners, but we have the right to own other people. Not just their labors, but to manipulate, intimidate, dominate, control... All of these, Jesus is saying, is evidence that we hate God. And until, in a sense, friends, in, in, a, in the essence of Christianity, until you really recognize that you hate God, you will never be a Christian. Because nothing Jesus does will matter to you. He'll just be a romantic figure, a good moral teacher, or an example, you won't realize he had to go to the cross because you hate God. It is at that moment that it starts to make sense, I am so evil that he had to die for me. But I am so loved that he chose to die for me. But you see, if you don't have the both and of that, then you still aren't there. And you're still masking what's really underneath all your anxieties. What's underneath all your frustration, all your anger, all your depression? See, in many ways, what you find, you find people all the time who are saying, you know, nobody helped me. I make my own breaks. What's the American saying? I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. What a crock. <laughs> <laughs> 
Nobody gets anywhere without help. Nobody gets anywhere without other people lifting them up, giving them opportunities, opening doors for them. This, this is only hilarious to me, but I have the microphone. So, uh, <laughs> one of my favorite bumper stickers in the world is the one that says, if you can read this, thank a teacher. Because, I mean, it's, just, it's a perfect example. The, the only reason you can read is somebody helped you. And the only reason you can go anywhere is because you can read. And you start to realize, I didn't get anywhere on my own. Other people were patient with me. Other people took, you know, a, a lump of clay and get, made something of it. To say, I made myself is like the child who says, I'll do it myself. I mean, if you have ever had little children who start going, I can do it myself, mommy. They're going to starve to death because they can't handle the spoon or the fork. <laughs> they hit everywhere but the mouth. And you try to direct the fork or the spoon. They're like, no, they start screaming. You're like, you're going to starve. So many people, instead of facing that, now we have squeeze things that they can just, they can just chunk into their mouths. So instead of dealing with their sinfulness, we just go with it. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that the natural man says, I'll do it myself. Even though I starve to death spiritually, even though I'm, I'm, I'm devastated emotionally, don't you try to take away my control. That's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about this. Now, you know, in case you think I'm, I'm, I'm in some ways just, you know, giving an argument just in the Christian realm, think about this. A lot of people really love Nietzsche. As a matter of fact, Cl Kelly Clarkson loves Nietzsche. She sang a whole song. You know, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. That's from the 1800s. And so uh, Nietzsche had this to say. He said in 1888, he said, 1882, sorry, he released a book saying God is dead. There is no God. We need no God. But then in that same book, he taught this. Well, if you are the owner of your own life, of your own vineyard, then you're the owner of a meaningless existence. And here's, how, here's how he characterized this. Now, you know, he's saying there is no God, but there, he says because there is no God, there is therefore no meaning. And he characterized it this way. He said in hundreds of years from now, it won't matter if you were a, a loving, compassionate person or if you were a serial killer. Either way, it has no meaning. You'll be dead, and that's all that there'll be. Now, if you illustrate it, really in people, let's say, in contemporaries, it, what he's saying it won't matter if you're Mother Teresa or if you're Harvey Weinstein. Either way, it has no meaning. Are you tracking with me on this? You see, and what he's saying, if you put it in Jesus' terms, he's saying you are the owner of a meaningless vineyard if there is no God. Now, most of your friends, my friends, have never thought that far out. They just want to think, I, I don't want anybody telling me what to do, what to do with my sexual life. Who in the world is going to tell me I need to give the first 10% of everything I earn to, to him when I can't even live off 100% of what I earn. 
You know, those kind of things that, that, that tend to make people say, nobody can tell me what to do. That's how most people look. But by doing so, they don't realize that they have now become the proud owners of a meaningless vineyard. And think about this with me. Doesn't something inside of you say that there's something more meaningful about the life that Mother Teresa lived than the life that Harvey Weinstein has lived? Isn't there something inside of you that says, I'd rather be like one than the other? Well, isn't that an indication that you're not an independent free agent? Isn't that an indication that somewhere inside of you, you know there's a meaningful vineyard and you're not the owner of it? Isn't there a possibility that there's a voice inside of you that says you're not independent but dependent? Are you tracking with me in this? So what about this relationship to the messengers? Well, what Jesus is saying is the, the hate is so real, the animosity towards God, the antagonism towards God is so real that anybody who brings it up, anybody who speaks it, anybody who says anything about it, they have killed. They put them in prison. They've shut them up. They've tried to shut them down. If you know anything about the Old Testament, it was not safe to be a prophet. Jeremiah got thrown in prison, got thrown into a, an empty well. Elijah had to run for his life. Many of the prophets were killed just because they spoke what people didn't want to hear. I want you to know I'm leaving immediately after the service. <laughs> so there's two things that Jesus means by this idea about the messengers. One is this. Nobody wants to know how bad they really are. And Jesus says... The natural state of your mind and my mind is we hate God. And until we can face that, we cannot change. You cannot, friends, repent of what you will not recognize. If you can't realize it, you can't change it. It's when, see, the heart of Christianity is not me trying to be a better version of me. The heart of Christianity is me recognizing that in my natural state, I'm hostile to the owner because I don't want to be a tenant. I want to be the owner. So the second thing in this, not only do the people not want this message heard, but secondly, God just keeps sending messengers. Do you understand how gracious God is? How merciful He is? He doesn't, he doesn't just tell you once. He tells you again and again, and He tells you again. See, what He's trying to say to you from heaven by messages is that any sense you have that you're self-sufficient or that you're independent is an illusion that is dangerous to you. And he's willing to risk his choice servants to tell you that. <laughs> Some people say to me, well, let me, just, let me just tell you, my life sucks. My life's horrible. Everything I plan falls apart. Everything I try to do, nothing ever works. I can't ever get out of, you know, out of debt. I can't do all of these things. If there was a God, it would not be this bad. What are, have you ever thought about this? All of those are providential messages of God saying, you're not the owner. You're a tenant. I mean, no matter what happens in your life, People constantly say to me, life is not fair. You want to go make a friend at ShopRite? Just say, life is not fair. You'll suddenly have all kinds of friends. <laughs> They'll all agree with you. 
But that's not really the issue, friends. What's really the issue is this. Life will not let you control it. Life is never going to let you control it. And all of these messages are messages from God so that you won't believe anymore you're an owner, but you'll know you're a tenant. Every time it doesn't work out, it's God saying, you're not the owner. Strangely enough, Murphy's Law seems to be God's law. When he's speaking to you and he says to you, do, not under, do you not understand? It has to be by my word. It has to be my, by my will. It has to be for my profit. And he says, everything you have is a gift. The breath you're breathing is a gift. Your creativity is a gift. Your hard work is a gift. Everything you have and everything you are is a gift. When you start to recognize that, you'll stop killing the messenger and you'll begin to believe the, mes- the message. Please understand something. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. All your anger, friends, all your anxiety, all of it is a manifestation. Your discouragement, your despair, your depression, it's a manifestation that you still hate God. I mean, you can keep trying to psychologically fix it. You can try to blame other people. You can try to change your circumstances. But if you don't get to the root, you're never going to have fruit. I say those so Alan will remember them. (laughs) One less person to kill me afterwards. (laughs) So here's the third relationship. So Jesus says the tenants realize this one is the owner's son. The grace and the mercy, the brokenheartedness of the owner saying, I'm going to send my beloved son. And, and hopefully they'll respect him. But what they begin to see is immediately the person who's keeping us from being in control, the person who's keeping us from being in charge, that person is now sending his son. Let's kill the heir. That's what Jesus tells in the story. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 69, Jesus explains in this story, what Psalm 69 was talking about, in that, that they hated the Messiah without cause. He had done, you think about, what has he done? He's healed the sick. He's, he's made the lame walk and the blind see. He's, he's freed the demonized. He's, he's elevated uh, uh, women and children. He's elevated men <laughs> into a place that they were always meant to be in terms of being persons instead of slaves. He's done all these things. He's done nothing but good, but they hate him. They hate him. Why? Because he's the representative that they are not the owners. He's in their face. They're not the owners. They're the tenants. So they hate him. In Romans 8, verse 7, it doesn't say that in our natural minds we have a hatred for God. It actually says the natural mind is hatred for God. In other words, it's pervasive. This is why you can't just clean up your act and if that's enough. This is why you can't just turn over a leaf. You have to be born again. Because you've you got to be birthed out of the hatred into love. You've got to be birthed out of the natural into something supernatural. Because the Bible says, and again, if you're going to 
If you're going to be saved by the words of Scripture, you're going to have to realize the words of Scripture are speaking of you. See, the issue that I find and why Jesus directs this at religious people is because most people want to just sort of uh, bring sin down to a set of external rules and regulations. Do you do this? Do you not do that? But what Jesus is saying in this parable and what the Scriptures teach is that sin really is a resistance to or a denial of the crown claims of Christ over your life. See, people, people can be, try to be sexually pure without Jesus. People can stop drinking without Jesus. People can do all kinds of things without Jesus, but you will never come into an intimate and right standing with God apart from Jesus. Religion is actually a mask of hatred. It's a way to keep God at arm's length while I'm still the owner in control of myself and my life. It is only when I begin to break down and realize I have hatred for God, then you begin to realize I need a change. I need a conversion. I need something that's going to make me radically new. Listen, if you're just restraining your anger, you're not free. If all you're doing is restraining your lust, you know what? You could cut out both your eyes and still lust. Maybe even more, because it's stuck there. This, is, this isn't going to be enough to just have willpower. You're going to have to have a Savior. You're going to have to have a substitute. You're going to have to have a representative. And when you see this, and I've seen it all my life and probably have practiced it parts of my life where I have this sort of smugness about how much more righteous I am than other people. When you see that, that's a tenant who's pretending to be an owner and who's saying, I'm better than, I'm good in my own behavior, in my own morality. But what you're really seeing is somebody who's the ruler of a meaningless vineyard. Are you hearing me in this? Do you feel what the Spirit is saying to you today? You see, and this is so pervasive in our society. Now, one of the, someone you maybe know, you don't know, Aldous Huxley was a writer and philosopher in the 20th century, and he wrote a book called Brave New World. Interesting guy. Uh, he believed uh, there was no God. Okay? He was a believer there was no God. But here's why he said he believed there was no God. I want to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. And he said, because if it's a meaningful universe, then I have to do what the Creator says. If it's a meaningless universe, then I can do whatever I want. Do you understand? That's behind almost every commercial, every movie. I read a thing this week that blew my mind. It was talking about sexuality in our, 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 our day today. And the diatribe of the person was uh, what, against, not against immorality or hooking up with people you have no commitment with. The diatribe, the sin was that men are having irresponsible ejaculations. I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh. We really are living in a meaningless vineyard where nothing is about morality, really. Nothing is about whether I 
really should be doing this kind of intimate giving of myself to somebody without commitment, where I all it is about is what are the what are the consequences going to be, and how can I avoid the consequences? We're living in a time where you have to understand that every evidence says this society hates God. I'll give you one more example of that. Lisa says I beat the bad side up a little too much, but I enjoy it. So, <laughs> Why is Jesus Christ a curse word? Why would that even be the first thing people say when they are angry? Except it's full of hatred. And, and, and sometimes they go, Jesus H. Christ. I don't know what the H stands for. <laughs> I don't think it's holy. But... Uh, why is that? Or why is it when I'm really angry, I want to damn somebody with, with God's name? Except that I hate, the one, I hate the one that I'm using. And even Christians will, will have something terrible. Oh, Jesus! And they're not praising him. Do you understand? There is a natural default setting towards hating God. But it's especially what Jesus says, it's a default setting to hating the Son. Oh, okay, that's enough of that. <laughs> so here's what Jesus says, and this is so beautiful. He says, look, I know I'm making you mad. I know I'm unmasking your anger, but I want you, he says, I want you to understand something. I am the stone that was prophesied. And when you reject me, I will become the cornerstone. And he says this really clearly. He says, if you reject me, you will be crushed by the stone. But if you accept me, if you receive me, then your whole life will be built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. That's powerful when you see that. Are you being crushed by the stone? Are you being built by the stone? Is your life connected to the destructive power of the stone or is your life connected to the weight and the glory of that stone? Here's what, here's what Ephesians 2 says. That all that enmity and all that hatred led to his killing. But in his killing, the enmity was killed. And, and, and you may have known this before, but it's getting more and more real to me what this means. I know that God took all of His righteous wrath. He took all of His justice and all the punishment, all the penalty that I was due for my sin, and He poured it out on Jesus. But that's not all that takes place there. You see, when you, you have a scapegoat, when you have a representative, when you have someone who is the sacrifice for you, He takes all your junk. So you see, all that hatred you had for God... He, he takes it on Himself. He becomes the hatred. He takes all the anger and frustration. He knew you would drive in New Jersey one day and you would need a sacrifice. <laughs> he takes all that frustration and all that anger that you can't seem to restrain or that bubbles up like a reservoir just underneath. He took it all and He said, it's all on me. And all you who worry all the time and you're filled with anxiety, he says, you can't just will yourself not to worry. I take it all on me. 
And those of you who are unbelieving and those of you who just feel like you have guilt and you have shame and you feel like you just can't do it, it gets discouraging. You fill with despair. He took it all and he said, it's all on me. And he, he killed it. He killed it. He didn't just say, in this nice, he died with it. I mean, it's not just that everything God had against us was sacrificed on the cross. It's everything we have against God. And everything we have against the owner. And everything we have against being a tenant. That also died in that cross. Are you hearing me? Do you understand? That's why, and, you know, even if you're struggling with some of the effects, if you start to realize, but the root has been cut. That's why Paul says, reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. But wait a minute, hold on. It's not all that's here. <clears throat> he doesn't let us stay tenants. He says, you know, they rejected the stone, but those who received the stone. And John puts it this way. He said, he came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, he gave them the right to be called children, sons, and daughters of God. Did you notice when Jesus taught us to pray, he didn't say, oh, owner, dear landlord. He said, our father. You know what John says? He says, behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called sons and daughters of God. You see, you see, you're actually in a better position than Adam and Eve. It may be hard for you to believe, but you're in a better position. Here's why. Adam and Eve in the garden, if they had kept his word, if they had given him the prophets, they would have gotten wages. It would have been based on how hard they worked. They would have had the fruit, the vegetables, all this stuff. They would have had all that, but it would have been based on their wages. Paul says in Romans 4, we no longer are those who get based on wages, but because we trust in Jesus, He gives us the gift. And John gets this when he says, Behold, what manner of love. Have you ever noticed that when you get your paycheck, you don't go, Behold. <laughs> you probably like to hold it a little longer. But you don't go, Oh, this is so amazing. You go, What? That's all I got? I thought I was going to get a whole lot more. Who is this FICA guy I keep paying off? <laughs> Not one of my kids. What is John saying? He's saying, it is so amazing. I don't deserve it. It is so amazing, but it is true. I have had a status change. I'm no longer a hater of God. I'm not just a tenant. I'm a son. You're a daughter. And there is a whole different set of rights and privileges that come to the son and to the daughter of the owner of the vineyard that don't come to tenants. Can you hear me today? Will you stand with me? This is one of the, this is one of the key tenants of Christianity. You have to recognize how much you hate God. Because until you recognize that, Jesus' sacrifice will never be that meaningful to you. And you'll keep going back to anxiety. 
and you'll keep going back to anger because you'll be mad that you're not the owner when all you are is the tenant. But only through Jesus do the tenants become children. Now, if you say to me, but I'm not all that good of a child. You know what? Have you ever noticed that when kids are adopted, they test their parents? They want to see, will you reject me? Will you send me back? But when you're truly adopted, your status has changed before your behavior changes. And your father in heaven initiated your status. So he knew what he was getting into when he adopted you. Will you saturate yourself right now with the love of the Father? Do you understand, friends? It's not dangerous to give up control to Him, but it is dangerous for you to keep holding on to the illusion or the delusion that you're the owner. And if you're not the owner, then the only one who makes sense to be the owner is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So would you close your eyes with me? I'm going to give you some words to pray. Again, they're they're the words I'm giving you. They can only be effective if they become the words of your heart. But I think it starts with words being spoken. Faith is usually an expression. It's, It's something that comes out. So would you say these words with me? Dear Father, you are the owner. The only thing I have a right to is to be a tenant. But I realize I'm not just a tenant. Having received Jesus, your beloved son, I have the right to call you Father. Now, if you're a son, say son. If you're a daughter, say daughter. I am your son. son. Okay, sons were louder for some reason. Can we do that again? I am your son. I heard two daughters. Let's do it one more time. I am your son. You know I was tricking you, right? I wanted the daughters to speak up. I feel like the Holy Spirit especially, He's on all of us, but there's something right now about daughters and the Father saying, it's like a a mantle of His love over you, the way only a, a, a loving father can love the daughter. And it may be that what I'm seeing is He's undoing some sexual abuse, or he's undoing some place of harassment or places where someone has made you feel worthless. I feel like that I feel him very tenderly saying to you, You're my daughter, and I will take care of you. I will protect you. I will meet your needs. I just feel like for some, I don't know why it's specific on daughters. Of course, the truth is true for sons as well. But it just feels like the Holy Spirit has this deep touch on daughters right now. Would you receive it? I've had this happen before where he's taking off old ragged clothes and he's putting on brand new beautiful clothing on you. And I feel like that's what he's doing. He's taking off shame, taking off guilt, giving you the identity as a daughter of the Most High God. 
Would you receive it? I don't know who it's specifically for, but I think it's very specific for some of you. Don't let this moment go. Don't be one who says, isn't that nice? Dig into this. Let healing go deep to where the wounds are. Because not only is it getting rid of the hatred, but it's restoring the love. It's restoring the places that were full of fear with perfect love. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing. As hard a message as this was, I feel your tenderness, your gentleness with us. That though we hated you, you never hated us. And though when we hated you, you died for us. When we hated you, you loved and commended your love for us in that you died for us. Wow. Wow. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Spirit. Thank you. Amen.